Uh, we're going to jump back into Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, there's one in a chair not far from you, in front or behind, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, should be about page 984, maybe in that Bible in your pew, somewhere right around there. We're going to be in verse 16 today. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to remind you, a lot of you have picked up this devotional, uh, Hidden in Christ, which has been kind of our guiding our time, a supplemental reading to what we've been doing. I bring it up again because each week I have had almost someone email me, text me, or just let me know how blessed they have been in going through this devotion. So if you haven't picked it up, um, you know, I encourage you, pick it up. You don't have to do it with our series. You can do it anytime. Uh, and pick it up. There are two, three-page readings, and I think they'll edify you in your walk with Christ, especially if you haven't had a regular daily devotional time. This is a great place to start. Just make that a part of your regular daily devotions hidden in Christ. We don't have any more for sale here, but you're smart people. You know how to order books. Hidden in Christ, James Bryan Smith. You can uh, pick yourself up uh, a copy. I'm not getting any royalties, by the way, from James Bryan Smith. I just think it's a good book and helpful to you. Uh, One Sunday morning, I heard the story of a mother who went in to wake up her son, tell him it was time to get ready for church, to which he replied, I'm not going. Some of you parents had this conversation this morning. Why not, she asked. The son said, I'll give you two good reasons. He said, people there don't like me. And number two, I don't like them either. His mother replied, I'll give you two good reasons why you should go to church. Number one, you're 59 years old. (laughs) Number two, you're the pastor. (laughs) Need to get to church. I don't know how many of you came to church this morning if you didn't even feel like coming to church this morning, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you came, decided to come. There's probably a lot of reasons why people might not come to church. There's probably a lot of reasons why people come to church. I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning. Why do you come? If I were to go around the room and say, why did you come to church this morning? I bet there would be a lot of different reasons. You might say why you came to church. Some might say, well, I came because I like the music. Others might come and say, well, I come because I want to see my friends. Or I like the free coffee. Or maybe you feel like you're supposed to be here. It's something you're supposed to do. Or maybe you came and say, because it makes me feel good. And I feel good when I'm here. And I feel better when I leave. And so that's why I come. Or maybe it just gives you something to do on a Sunday morning and a place to go. I'm not sure all the reasons people come to church. But I do know that as Christians, one of the reasons we should come to church should be to encounter Jesus. Perhaps the main reason, I would argue, we should come to church is to encounter Christ and his presence and his spirit. But how do we measure whether the spirit was present in our midst? I think sometimes we use measurements that we might say uh, are not exactly biblical. We might leave church on a Sunday morning and say, oh, the presence of God was there. And what we really mean was the speaker was good and spoke to my needs. Or the music was songs that I like. They finally chose the right songs. Or the room was full. It's amazing how God's presence shows up every time the room is full, the music is my favorite songs, and the preacher is entertaining. 
And we leave going, oh, God was there this morning. But was he? There's an important aspect of when we gather that the presence of Christ ought to dwell among us. It's what we want. But how does it happen? And whose responsibility is it to make sure it happens? Those are the two questions I want us to look at this morning. When we gather together and come together, how do we make sure that the presence of Christ is among us? And whose responsibility is it to make sure that that actually happens? Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 16 in depth this morning, but I want to kind of backtrack and review the cover the ground that we have uh, come across and read for you verses 1 through 17, this passage that we've been in for these last six weeks. And here's what the Word of God says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves before your word. Lord, that we would be shaped by your word and not shape your word in light of our lives. That we would sit under your word. That it would guide us and form us more into the image of Christ. Would help me to get out of the way that your word may go forth to us this morning. And may we be changed because of it. 
In Christ's name, amen. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So first of all, what is the word of Christ? Well, when Paul spoke of the word of Christ and when he preached, he didn't have one of these to carry around with him. Uh, What we know is the New Testament hadn't been written yet, but he did have the message of Christ that he carried with him and everywhere and the presence of Christ that he carried with him. And Paul says that message and that hope and that life of Christ ought to dwell in you when you meet. In fact, dwell is the only imperative in this verse. It's a command. It's this ought to, needs to happen when you gather that the word of Christ dwell in your midst when you meet. He says this is what's supposed to happen when you come together. And I think it's what we want as Christians. We want to come together and we want the presence of Christ to be there and to be present with us. But whose job is it to make it happen? Whose job is it to make sure that the presence of Christ is there and dwells among us when we meet? I think sometimes we think it's the person or the people who are on this space. This space that it's sometimes we might refer to it without thinking as a stage, but it's not a stage. The stage is a place where actors will perform for the benefit of those who come and sit and observe. Sometimes it's called a platform, but it's not a platform in the sense that it's not a platform for anyone's personal agenda or thoughts. Platform only in as much as it advances God's word and his plan. It's an altar where the word of God is brought forth and the people of God come and offer themselves as living sacrifices before God. But I will tell you, I think that many times the message is given that the one who's responsible to make sure that the presence of God dwells among us is the person standing in this space. There's many things I like about the church and the modern church and the time that we live in. I love the worship music we have. I love the community aspect. I love uh, the word being preached and all the resources that we have available to us. I mean, not just the written Bible, but the, 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 I mean, I got computer resources that I can do things and searches in the Bible that Paul would never have dreamed of. I love that part. There's at least one thing, though, about being a part of the modern church that I'm not excited about. And that's the things that we have sometimes adopted from the culture around us and brought into the church. And specifically today, I'm thinking of a consumeristic mindset that we sometimes bring into the church with us. And to be fair, as I've said before, it's hard not to fault people for this because we live in a consumeristic world. Everything is at your beck and call and everything at times is there when you need it. You can speak to the air and tell Alexa to bring Kleenex to your house and a day later it ends up on your doorstep. This is the world that we live in. And so people come into church and expect that the church in one hour, one day a week will take care of all their family's spiritual needs, including top-notch kids programs, a sermon that could pass for a TED Talk, fantastic musicians, a great service production in an orderly, clean, and modern facility. 
and we'll sit back and wait until you do it. And I have to be honest, if I'm to be fair, I think many times that we in leadership in the modern church have said, okay, we'll do that. I think many times pastors and those in leadership have bought in just as much to the consumeristic, customer-centric mindset of the world that we live in. Instead of at times saying the truth is an hour and a half a week is not going to take care of your spiritual needs of your family. The truth is it's a daily spiritual walk with the Lord and a daily dying to yourself. The truth is you've got to learn to feed yourself from God's word. You've got to make yourself intentionally a part of a community of people who will love you and speak into your life. And the truth is a lot of times it's messy and not clean and neat to become and be formed into the image of Christ. But we have at times bought into this idea this consumeristic idea that I'll come and you can make it happen. But here's the thing. In that verse, in verse 16, where it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, the you in the Greek is a plural you. We don't have a real good way of distinguishing that in our English, but it's you plural. Now, the people from down south, they've got a way of communicating this that we don't have up north, right? You know the word they have, right? What's the word? Y'all. It doesn't sound great, but it does communicate the meaning. I guess if this was the southern translation, it would be let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. If it's the New England translation, it's let the word of Christ dwell in you guys. Or you, you guyses. Use. Let the word of Christ. But the point, it's plural. Here's what it's not. This is not Paul writing to the pastor of the church of Colossae. Nope. It's not you individually. It is Paul writing to the church. Not the person standing in this space, but the people sitting in those spaces. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all. I can't even say it right. It, 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 it grates against me to even say it. Dwell in you, all of you, all y'all, richly. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that when Paul says that the responsibility and the command is that the dwell, word of Christ dwell in you, it's not the pastor at the church at Colossae's responsibility. It is the church's responsibility to make sure that the word of Christ dwells in it. So whose job is it? It's not me, it's we. It's all of our job. It's why one of the reasons when we do a child dedication here on stage, one of the covenants I ask you to make as a church is will you cultivate in your church an atmosphere of love and peace such that this child will, as they continue to live here, grow and desire the Christian way of life because it is all of our responsibility to make sure that the word and the message of Christ dwells among us. So if that's our responsibility, how do we do it? Well, two things, two things, two ways to do it that Paul gives us that I want to talk about this morning. And the first one is teaching and admonishing one another. 
You probably didn't see that coming. Probably thought it was going to be a warm, fuzzy, love one another, care for one another. But the next part of the verse is teaching and admonishing one another. You and I have been just told in this passage of how to dress. We've been told what to wear and what not to wear. It's a little bit of Paul's Project Runway. He's telling you what you should wear as a follower of Christ. And he says, put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving. This is all stuff you're supposed to put on. Forgiving each other as you've been forgiven. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what you're supposed to wear. And I'd put this, excuse me, I'd put this all under the category of teaching. Teaching. So you teach, we teach each other what to wear. There's another one Paul used, and he used the word admonish. And I would put the word admonish on what not to wear. What not to wear. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Take them off. Don't wear these. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. That's what not to wear. And I would put those under the category of things we admonish, or admonished for. Now, here's the thing. There's a part of this where I can individually say, okay, this is what I need to put on and what I need to take off. But there's also a part of this that this is you, plural. Sometimes I'll go clothing shopping, and I'll take my son, Isaac, with me, And Isaac uh, is not shy in telling me what looks good and what does not look good when I try it on. In fact, I'll come out of the, uh, you know, the fitting room and he'll say, oh, no. I have nicknamed him Giorgio Armani because he's usually right. You say, you can't wear that. He said, that color looks terrible on you. I said, I've got a shirt at home, this color, and I wear it all the time. And he says, I know, it looks terrible on you. Why are you telling me this now? Go home. This happened. This, this for real happened recently. Went home. Wendy, Isaac said this shirt looks terrible on me. Yeah, that shirt doesn't look good on me. I, 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 I don't like that. That shirt's tired. You've got to get rid of it. Like, no. Anyone admonish me at any point. It's just like, no, you seem to like wearing it. <laughs> But here's the thing. It's true in our Christian life too. I think teaching and admonishing is just that. Teaching is saying, look, when you're growing up in Christ, here's what you should wear, here's what you should put on. But admonishing times is saying, seeing something in someone and saying, that's not a good look for you. That's not a good look for you. Uh, You're a follower of Christ. That doesn't look good on you. Anger. Malice, wrath, jealousy. It's not a good look for you. And that's essentially what this admonishment aspect is. And Paul says that for the presence of Christ to dwell among you, you're going to have to teach and admonish one another. That's one of the ways it happens. It's also the responsibility not only to give it, but also to listen to it when it's given to us. 
But there is a qualifier. Paul says how to do this. He said, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And this is the key. Wisdom requires that when we do it, we pray and we ask. And I think we ask at least two questions that are important. It would be wise of you when you're considering teaching and especially admonishing someone else in the body of Christ to consider these two questions. One, is it the right thing to say? Is it the right thing to say? Is this something that's consistent with God's word? Or is this just a pet peeve of my own? Is this something that aggravates me? Or is it something that actually is in God's word that needs to be brought up and brought out? Is it the right thing to say? But then the second question I think it's wise to ask is, am I the right person to say it? Am I the right person to say it? It's not always the case that you are. Something come up with me recently where someone uh, that's in my circle of influence, not a part of this church, but in my circle of influence that I was talking to another one as a mutual friend and said, you know, there's this thing and it needs to be said to this friend of ours. And we talked about it and we both agree that yes, it's something that needs to be said. It's not a sin or something like that, but it's something that needs to be said and truth that needs to be heard. But after thinking and praying through it honestly over weeks, we both agreed that I'm probably not the one to say it. Just the relational dynamics and everything, it wouldn't be heard from me. But someone needs to say it. And sometimes you'll come to a place and you'll realize that something needs to be said, but you'll have to pray and ask God to ensure that someone will say it. But I'd say that's the... Rarity. More often than not, the truth is we're supposed to say something and we don't. That's the other mistake. Because we say, well, who am I to say? Well, you're a member of the body of Christ. And hopefully, if you're thinking of speaking this to somebody, you're someone who loves them and is in relationship with them and walks with them. Because saying it in wisdom also means that we say it with love and grace because Jesus came full of truth and grace. And you do it in the context of relationship where not only will I teach and admonish, but I will walk with you as you endeavor to live out this life that God has called you to live. Because this was the case. In church, the churches Paul's writing to, they're not spread out over hundreds of miles. They don't drive in and drive out and then never see each other. They live among one another. If they're going to teach and admonish one another, they are going to know one another. I've got two guys in my life that I meet with for coffee every couple of weeks, and they're pastors. Um, and they have permission to speak into my life, and they had permission to admonish me and ask the hard questions and they're pastors, so they know the unique temptations and trials that I might face in my particular role. And they try and I hope they don't let me to get away with things that I'll try and get away with to fool people around me. We should all have people in our lives that have that permission to speak into our lives. That we've given them that permission. We're to teach and admonish one another. And as we do, the presence of Christ will dwell with us. Secondly... There's a part to play not only in teaching and admonishing, but you have a part to play as a musician. I'm not sure if you knew that. 
Just as it's not just the person behind this pulpit whose job it is to teach and admonish, it's not the people that are behind these instruments who primarily, strictly, and are only given the task of singing. Because actually, Paul says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is how the presence of Christ dwells within you and dwells among you. We're to sing. Not everybody likes singing, maybe. Paul commands it. This is one of the ways that the presence of Christ dwells among you. Why do we sing? Why is it important? Because it has been a part of the history of God's people ever since the beginning. So why is singing important? I think for at least three reasons. One, it moves us. Music connects us in an emotional level like nothing ever does. And you say, well, you know, how important is emotions? Well, God created you as an emotional being. He did not create you simply as a brain on a stick an intellectual being with only a head or only hands, your emotions, where do you think they came from? They came from God. God uses emotional language for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He uses emotional language of loving the world, of loving us. He uses emotional language of hating at times. He uses emotional language that draws us in. Now, there is a difference vastly between emotionalism and touching our emotions through song and worship. Emotionalism is trying to convince and manipulate someone based on their emotional experience where I'm talking about when we understand and grasp the truths of who God is and what he does in our lives, that our emotions are moved and we are drawn into God's presence. And it is not, a, uh, it is not any less holy or spiritual when you weep in God's presence than when you discern some intellectual truth about God. God is both it's his heart and his head that he appeals to when he appeals to us. Music moves us. It also unites us brings us together. This is true outside the church. I mean, uh, there aren't too many places you sing corporately outside the church, I'm guessing. Unless you're in a choir or something like that. Where do you sing corporately outside church? Karaoke. Karaoke. But even then, it's not always corporately. You're up there on your own. But yeah, that's a good one. I didn't think of that one. That'll definitely bring you together. Fenway Park. Aaron says, yeah, you get there in the eighth inning and you hear the bump, 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 right? Sweet Caroline. Yeah. Why do they do that? I don't know why they do that, but they keep doing it. But why do they do it? Because it brings the crowd together. Seventh inning, take me out to the ball game. Before the game, the national anthem. Why? It brings us together. This is who we are. We're together in this. It unites us, brings us together. When we sing together, when we sing those common truths of our faith, it reminds us that we're together in this. But third, not only moves us and unites us, it helps us remember. You can probably remember a song easier than you can remember a doctrine. And when you put a doctrine or a truth about God in a song, then you can remember it. How many of you can even say the ABCs without singing the song? Have you ever even tried it? It is not easy to do. It helps us remember. Schoolhouse Rock knew this. They would teach us about prepositions and all kinds of things through song, and we'd remember it. It's true. It helps us remember. 
And there are things you'll remember about God because you remember the song and you'll be able to sing it about God. It's helpful. But the truth is, in the church often, just as we have often, I think, failed the church when it comes to teaching and admonishing by making you think that that is only the job of perhaps the pastor, we have done the same thing, I think, with music at times. We have given the impression at times that music is simply a personal choice. And to be fair, we live in a world where music is usually your personal choice. You go in the car, you can change the station. You don't like it, you can get satellite radio and get hundreds of stations. But even more than that, I think a better example is the many ways that you can get music now. You can get it through Spotify or Pandora. And here's the world that we live in. You set up your Pandora playlist. I like, I don't know, insert your favorite musician there. And it starts playing songs. But then it'll play different songs. They'll throw one in by a different artist. You're like, oh, don't like that one. And it starts learning your habits. And starts giving you more songs that you like and less that you don't like. And so you walk into church and there's singing and there's music and we bring the same consumeristic mindset with us. And we think, oh, uh, I like death was arrested, but I'd like to swipe right on how great thou art. (laughs) Or whatever it is. And the opposite for you maybe. We come in with the same kind of mindset. Why don't you curate my playlist for me? You know, we've brought that same kind of thought in there that it ought to be music that I like and that helps me and that I appreciate. C.S. Lewis, the author and theologian from the 20th century who wrote the Narnia Chronicles, among any others, when he came to Christ for the first time, the Oxford-trained, part of high society England, he struggled with this. And he said this, he came to Christ as an adult and would go to church to worship. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music were, nevertheless, being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. See, when we come together and sing so that the presence of Christ dwells among us, it isn't so that I can have the music in front of me that this is what I like and it entertains me. It is because that person beside you, maybe you don't need to hear about how great the faithfulness is of God this week, but you don't know what that other person who's sitting a little further down the row from you experienced this week. And they may have experienced something this week that has just rocked their world and they need to come in and hear the church proclaim great is the faithfulness of God because their faith in the faithfulness of God was shaken that week.
And so we come and we sing together and we preach to one another. And I may not like the song and I may not like the words, but that per- it's not for me, it's for us together proclaiming and worshiping who God is. And you may not need to hear this week about how great our God is, but that person down the row or across the room who had their world changed or got something news this week that they didn't expect to get, they need to be reminded how great is our God. That he's bigger than all these circumstances. He's bigger than what's come into your life. He's bigger than what's, what, what might be bringing you down. And they need to hear the church sing. So they know they're not in it alone. How great is our God. And they need it not just from a CD or from a radio. They need it from the people of God living beside them. Breathing, sweating, singing the praises of God. And this is the church To be reminded that death was arrested, that you need not fear it anymore. To be reminded that this is what we believe in God the Father, His Son, the Holy Spirit, in the church of Jesus Christ, the gathered saints who will one day come together and meet Him in the air. That this is the truth we hang on to. And it may not always come in the morning, that word from this pulpit, but it may be the words sung one another, to one another, for God. We have personalized it way too much. We have individualized it way too much. Worship is not about having an individual experience with God, although no doubt you will. That individual experience is the byproduct of participating in community. Finally, some of us consider music optional. Well, the only problem there is it's never been optional throughout the church. The early church sang, Paul and Silas sang in prison, the apostles sang, Jesus attended feasts in temple with his family where he no doubt sang. Throughout the Old Testament, we have singing as a part of worship. The people of God have always sung as a part of worship, and here in this verse, we are instructed as a part of our gathering to sing. If you're going to argue that singing is optional for the believer, there is a vast amount of scripture you will have to ignore. We're called to sing. It pleases God. I don't know why. I don't know what pleasure it brings to God, but he has always had singing as a part of his worship. From the Psalms, beyond that, beyond that, the songs of Moses sang. He's always had singing as a part of his worship. And it brings us together and edifies us. But this is also qualified where to do it with gratitude. We're to do this with gratitude. The scripture in Colossians chapter 3 says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Don't sing out of obligation or reluctantly come and sing with gratitude. It's not always been easy for the church corporate to sing with gratitude. And in fact, even in the 18th century in John Wesley's time, He had a hard time, apparently, getting people to sing out corporately to God. He had to put these instructions in the front of the Methodist hymnal that said, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Above all, sing spiritually, have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself and see that your heart is not carried away with the sounds. Wesley admonished us, sing. Sing with passion, sing it out so that those around you can hear of your faith. It's an encouragement 
when I hear you sing, when you hear me sing. I'm gonna ask, uh, we're gonna close our service out in song. And as we do, let me give you, here's the idea I wanna leave you with this morning. Where we teach, admonish, and sing well, the presence of God will dwell. Where we teach and admonish and sing well, the presence of God will dwell. This is a part of who we are called. We are called to bring about, to do your job. And your job is not just to show up. Your job is to participate and encourage others to do what God is calling them to do. To admonish where God is, we're acting in a place where God would not call us to live and to participate in being worshipful to God and encouraging one another through that. Because when we do that, that's where the presence of God will dwell. The truth is for me, and I'm guessing the truth is for you, that the people who influenced your journey didn't always have the title of pastor. In fact, I'm guessing most of them didn't. I hope one or two of them did. But most of them probably didn't. The people who God uses to influence us, to draw us more to himself, to teach us and admonish us, most of them were probably sitting in the rows beside us and not on the space in front of us. True in my life, and I'm guessing it was probably true in your life too. Because in my life, there were people like Steve Thorne, who was an engineer during the week, Monday through Friday, but on Friday nights, would get together with us, half a dozen teenagers, and he would try and teach us about Jesus and open up the Bible, and we'd have fun and at times, and he'd also teach us about Christian music, and he'd call out and teach us what leadership was, and many of us that were in his youth group are serving God today because of Steve. It wasn't called pastor. It was just Steve. He gave his time to a bunch of teenagers who came out on a Friday night. People like Ray Richards, who when I was a kid, he was my Bible quiz coach. And he would rival Avon for enthusiasm, Ray would. I don't know what it is about good Bible quiz coaches, but they are encouraging. See, Ray taught me about cheering on, cheering people on, because there was no greater cheerleader I ever had in my life than Ray Richards. Because Ray would, he would get excited at every question. He would jump, I remember jumping up one time, and he would get so excited, and he'd forget that there was another team there that lost. And uh, it was a little bit at times, but he would get excited. I remember the day I was called to ministry, sitting in church on a Sunday morning, and Ray jumped up and screamed. And I'm like, sit down. It was a little embarrassing. But he was excited. He said, I was excited in that moment. People like Edgar Bartlett, who's sitting here somewhere today. You changed seats on me, Edgar. There you are. You were in a different seat in the 9 o'clock service. People like Edgar, who, when we were going through a rough time in the church with the Family Life Center a few years ago, and... I didn't know what to do, and I felt at a loss, and I felt inadequate as a leader, and I felt I uh, wasn't sure what to do next, and just felt like everything was going the wrong direction, and Edgar said, I think we need to pray, Pastor. And I said, Edgar, I feel like I am praying. And he said, no, we need to pray as a church, and we need to get together every day, Monday through Friday, from 12 to 1, and pray. We did, and he was right. And God moved. 
Edgar, who just recently came up with me a couple weeks ago, and he told me something, and I don't think I told him this yet, except in the first service, that, that he had told me something else that he felt like, and I, and I wasn't thinking that direction, and I said, afterwards, thinking, about Edgar, you're right. You're right, and you know what that is that you said to me, and, and you're right. But I need people in my life like that who teach and admonish me. People like Gene Frazier, who years ago when I was a new pastor in this church, came into my office and admonished me on something. And she was right, and I was wrong. And you need people in your life like that. People like Evie Kyriakis, who was in this church and sat on that front row, taught me about faithfulness and prayer. And people like Dick Amohandro, who I talked about and we prayed for earlier, who I remember one day taking me up to his office on the top floor of a tall building in Boston and telling me about what life was like in his world, telling me about what it was like that week to have someone offer him a $100,000 bribe to do something that he knew he wasn't supposed to do, and teaching me that the world that I know in the church isn't always the world that people sitting in the chairs live in. I appreciate people like that who have spoken in my life and taught me about what it is to follow God. I hope you have people in your life like that. But more than that, this morning, God is calling you to be that to one another. It's the ministry that happens between the chairs and the rows that really makes sure that the presence of Christ will dwell among us. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna close out our service as only we can after reading this passage, which is in singing together. Would you stand? Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for your church. And I pray that you would help us to be your church, to love one another well, to teach and admonish in wisdom, and to sing Lord, with gratefulness to you. And let us do that now, guided by you in Christ's name. Amen.